Last Thursday, a week last Thursday, one day before the terrible atrocity, uh, terrorist atrocity in Paris, um, a gentleman by the name of Mohamed Mwazi, nicknamed Jihadi John, was killed through a US drone strike uh, on him in Syria. And Mwazi was renowned for beheading his captives, including British aid workers Alan Henning and David Haynes, and 21 Syrian soldiers and many, many others. Upon news of his death, many have said, good riddance to an incredibly evil man. Others have said, it's such a shame that he was not brought back into the UK where he could be judged by British law. I want you, for a moment, to rewind. Rewind, say, a year maybe two years. And just for a moment this morning, I want you to imagine the unthinkable. I want you to imagine that an evil zealot like Emwazi, that he received a spiritual uh, vision from heaven, from God, that caused his life to be turned around. I want you this morning to imagine that this vision stopped him from propagating his violent brand of the, of, of, the, of the Muslim faith and caused him to become a true follower of Jesus. Now even now, upon hearing that news, um, how would you react? How would people react at the very thought of it? I imagine that some would be angry, some would be repulsed at the thought of it. And I guess that the majority of people would be unable to believe that such a conversion was genuine. Few people would trust him. Understandably, both Christian groups and government would think that it was a ploy, that it was a strategy, that it was a contract, somehow in order to infiltrate their inner circles. In Wazi, a Christian nonsense. Nonsense. It couldn't possibly be true. Let's take this scandalous reflection a stage further. Let us just continue to imagine for a moment Emwazi, who had experienced such an about turn in his life, then going on and doing everything in his power to persuade people that his former religion was a dead end and that people should accept Jesus Christ as Lord. And you might say to me, Steve, already, this, what you've asked us to imagine, is, is too fanciful, it's far-fetched, it's too astonishing for words. Well, maybe. Maybe not. For that conversion did happen, not to Emwazi, but to a man just like Emwazi in so many ways. And his name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. And Saul, like Emwazi, was a persecutor of people of another faith. He was not content merely with sticking in the proverbial boot in his own city, but he went out of his way. He went to Syria. Doesn't that sound familiar? To hound out followers of the way who later became Christians, or known as Christians, his desire was to wipe these infidels out from the face of the earth. And in doing so, he thought that he was, going to do, that he was doing God a favour. 
You may say to me, Saul didn't behead anyone. No, he didn't. In fact, Saul's tactics were even more barbaric because he got religious zealots to throw rocks at their bodies. Their heads, their limbs of the victims were mercilessly battered until those people could move no more. Now, I use Emwazi this morning as a modern-day illustration, not to be controversial, and most certainly not to be offensive. But I wanted to bring home to us the incredible change in Saul's life. You see, as Christians, we often look at Saul of Tarsus, who became Apostle Paul. We look at him through the lens of what he became. That he became this mighty apostle, an academic theologian, a Christian missionary, a church planter. And since he used his life so amazingly for the glory of God later on, we seem to forget the impact that his conversion would have had upon those who heard it first. Saul's story is told in a few places in the New Testament. Dr. Luke speaks of it in Acts chapter 9, uh, of his about turn on the road to Damascus. And then Saul himself tells of how he came to faith in Jesus on two occasions in Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. In chapter 22, when he tells the story uh, before a crowd in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 26, when he was before King Agrippa. And in other, on other occasions uh, in the New Testament, we find Paul mentioning this great event in his life that turned him around completely. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, for those of you that know your way around the New Testament, that's the great chapter, isn't it? On the, the resurrection of Jesus. And Saul, again, provides a wonderful insight and his story of redemption in that. And what we're going to do, we're going to be looking at some of his words this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll put them up on screen in a moment. But so that we can acclimatize ourselves as to what's happening, uh, let's understand a little bit of the context here of the Church of Corinth. The Church of Corinth, or people certainly in the city of Corinth, were saying that once you're dead, you're dead. Isn't that familiar? That's almost, uh, you know, sort of what many people say today. Once you're dead, you're dead. And some people were saying that not even Christ had risen from the dead. And Saul, who is now known as Paul, he actually changed his Hebrew name into a Latin name. Perhaps that was uh, more appropriate for him being an apostle to the Gentiles. He wanted to correct the misunderstanding of these people in the city of Corinth. And he uh, brought out a whole list of people who had physically seen the risen Christ after his, after his death. And he went through this list. And first of all, he said that eyewitnesses included Peter. And then Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples. Then he was seen by more than 500 people, most of whom are still alive. Then he was seen by James. Then he was seen by the apostles and that's where we pick up our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Nor I worked harder than all of them. 
Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Today is our sixth study in this particular series. Grace is really amazing. And over the last few weeks we have defined what grace is. That grace is God's unconditional love. That he has loved us with this unmerited favour. That there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us anymore. In fact, over the last few weeks, Dan and I have been uh, talking about a statement from Philip Yancey, which I continue to find utterly mind-boggling. When Philip Yancey said that there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us more than he does. And there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us less than he does. And some people have said, well... Grace, that sounds too good to be true. Others have said, well, there's got to be some catch in this somewhere because there's no such thing as a free lunch in this world. Whilst others have said, well, if grace is true in the way that you say that it is, then what is stopping me living from living a sinful life? After all, if there's nothing I can do to cause God to love me less than he does just now, it doesn't matter if I sin or not. And I thought that Dan handled that question really well last week in last week's study. And uh, I would encourage you that if you are not here one Sunday, if you want to sort of catch up on this, because this is not just a talk on on one Sunday, it's a talk over a period of nine weeks, do catch up on the podcasts on our website. But this morning, I want to develop our theme on grace by attempting a by attempting for us to understand this uh, particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there are three things that I want to bring out of that passage. Firstly, that grace is our only claim to fame. Secondly, that grace requires a response from us. And thirdly, that grace enables that response. So again, let's try our best to understand the context of what's going on here because it will make so much more sense to us. And, uh, you know, as I've said to you in the past, there are three rules of uh, interpreting Scripture. Context, context, context. And it's always good for us to do that. You see, if we read through Paul's letters to the Corinthians, then we can see that there are snippets there of the difficulties that Paul was uh, experiencing with them. The Corinthians always seem to buck his authority. They always question his motives. They always try to demean him. And even though he was their founding pastor, there were others who came in who infiltrated this church with different teaching. And Paul rather sarcastically calls them super apostles because they had won the hearts of the Christians in that city and the Christians there seemed to have an inflated view of these people. Now, what was Paul like? Well, history tells us that um, he didn't have a very commanding stature. He was no Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right? Um, He was small. He was bow-legged. He was bald. And he had a big nose. In fact, he was a little bit like, no, I'm not going there. That was a joke. That was a joke. But apart... Apart from what he looked like, we pick up other bits of information about Paul from other letters. For example, it appeared that he had a major difficulty with his eyesight. He writes to the Galatian Christians and tells tells them that 
they would have torn out their own eyes and given them to him, if possible. The implication there is that Paul had problems with his eyesight. He wasn't a commanding speaker either. When he writes to the Corinthians, he tells them, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, but I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. When he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he actually quotes them and what they were saying about him. When he says, For some say, his, speaking of Paul, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. So, humanly speaking, this guy, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, although he's a brilliant, brilliant intellectual, he didn't particularly to be particularly a charismatic leader or a man's man, and he certainly had his opponents. So, how does Paul react to all of this? Well, he doesn't say, excuse me, I'm the founder of your church, a bit of respect please. Actually, he's not anxious at all to defend himself. And he doesn't pull rank. And much of what has been said about him, he actually agrees with. Look at this passage together. The first words there in verse 8. Last of all, he, Christ, appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle. An apostle was someone who was an eyewitness to the risen Christ and someone who had been commissioned to take the message to others. What does abnormally born mean? Well, does it speak of his natural birth? Does it speak of him being born by C-section or breach or something? No, it doesn't actually. It's not referring at all to his natural birth. But what it's referring to is that Paul is saying that he wasn't a part of the original group of disciples. His experience of the, of, of the risen Christ wasn't pre-resurrection like most of the other disciples. They walked with Jesus. They learned from him. They were with him for three years. It wasn't even post-resurrection. James, his own brother, it appears, became a Christian only after seeing Jesus risen from the dead. It was actually for Paul post-ascension, after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And none of the other apostles received a Damascus Road experience in the way that he did, and it wasn't the norm. So that's what he's talking about there. And then he calls himself the least of the apostles, who doesn't deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Was it because he was ugly, or short, or stumbled over words, or lacking charisma? Well, it was none of those things. The reason that he referred to himself as the least of the apostles was because he persecuted the church. Now, Paul was a changed man. But I guess that it must have been so difficult for him to forgive himself. You know, we love, as Christians, 2,000 years later, we love quoting the Apostle Paul because his words bring us such encouragement. You know, we quote such words as his words to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We love quoting that. We love quoting his words to the Corinthians in his second letter. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, and all things have become new. 
Words which speak to us profoundly and encourage us deeply. But do you know what? I've got no proof for this. I doubt if Paul ever erased those images of Stephen being martyred from his mind, from his consciousness, as he watched on approvingly. I believe that he carried those images like a a scar on his soul for the rest of his life. You see, being able to forgive himself for the sorrow that he had caused would have been an ongoing battle for him. And knowing his own past, I believe, kept him humble. Yes, knowing his own past would have kept him humble. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, I'm an apostle, all right. You know, I can't deny the fact. God sent me apart with his message to the non-Jews. But hey, it's got nothing at all to do with me. If I were to choose, you know, I wouldn't be choosing myself either. And that's the kind of tone that we're hearing from Paul. You see, Paul looked at himself and he was utterly amazed. He was bewildered. He was astonished. He was astounded. He was speechless that God should love him the way that he did. John Newton, he was another man who was utterly astounded that God should love him the way that he did. A man who was an atheist, a slave trader, who one night off the coast of Donegal in Ireland, when his ship nearly went down, he prayed out to God and there was a miracle that happened which saved his life and it got his attention. And he then wrote that hymn that we love singing, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And Newton speaks of himself as a wretch. He speaks of himself as lost and as blind. And I know that many of us feel the same way. For we are dumbstruck that God should love us. And that we are in awe that Almighty God should call us His own. It's amazing. I tell you what else is amazing. It's amazing to see the way that Paul viewed himself before his Christian conversion to the way that he viewed himself after. Before his conversion, he boasted of all the things that he had done. We haven't got time this morning to look into this passage, but when you go home, read Philippians chapter 3 and see the way that Paul just had a whole list of things that he thought were actually winning him brownie points with God. And they weren't at all. And he came to the conclusion that actually all of these things were actually getting in the way. And then compare that to the way that he looked upon himself after his conversion. Even in this passage this morning, he says that he was the least of the apostles. Didn't deserve to be called an apostle. 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Even though I was once a blasphemer, And a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. That word grace again, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. (laughs) What a difference! in his views before he became a Christian, when he was relying on his own goodness and a whole list of things that he had that thought, 
We're getting in favor with God. So afterwards, where we see there is no pride, no self-righteousness, no smugness, no conceit. His words are not about what he perceived as his own strengths. His words didn't focus on him. They focused on the mercy of God. They focused on God pouring out his grace on him. They focused on Jesus Christ as being the one who came in to be the saviour of the world. And he was the greatest sinner of all, was Paul. I am what I am by the grace of God. Do you know what happened down this country in churches week in, week out? In churches like ours, in churches not like ours, you will find two groups of people. One group of people will be saying that they have received God's gift of salvation, that they have been declared righteous by Almighty God, that they are on a pilgrimage in this world on their way to heaven. The other group, they may look externally very little different, but the other group are saying that they are attempting to win God's favour by the type of life that they lead on earth. How can you distinguish between the two groups? It's easy. You just ask them, what is their claim to fame with God? Ask them why they believe that they will be welcomed into heaven one day. And they will either say, much the same as Paul said before he was converted, speaking of his own goodness and this whole load of things that he thought were winning him favour with God, they will say, perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, I go to church, I live uprightly, I read my Bible, I pray, or whatever. Or, on the other hand, they will answer that question. Why should we be allowed into his heaven in the way that Paul answered following his conversion when he said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I don't deserve anything, but through Christ, God has given me everything. Grace is our only claim to fame. Grace also requires a response. Then verse 10, Paul writes, but, I, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. I've certainly underlined those words, not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Got a double negative there. Not without effect. In the, the message translation of the Bible it says, but because God was so generous and so gracious, here I am. And I'm not about to let his grace go waste. I quite like that. Gets rid of the double negatives, so not about to let his grace go waste. And what I am saying here, and we find it in this passage, is that grace requires a response. When we understand, when we truly understand what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on that cross... That God loves us unconditionally. That he loved us when we were still sinners. That God loved us before we ever bowed the knee to him. That God loved us before we ever came into a church building. God loved us before we ever confessed his lordship. Before we were baptized or joined a church that God loved us. In those days when we blasphemed his name. When we ridiculed people who followed him when we mocked those who believed in his existence, even then, he loved us. And Paul says, his grace to me was not without effect. 
and that he had worked harder than all the other apostles. I thought about that uh, just a couple of days ago. You know, that little comment, I worked harder than all the rest of them. And uh, it did make me smile a little bit. You know, he was hardly a guy who was out to win friends and influence people, was he? Oh yeah, I worked harder harder than a lot of them. It's like me coming in on a Sunday morning and saying, you know, I am what I am because of God's grace and because God's grace in my life, I really serve him and work hard for him. I work harder than the rest of you. And certainly more than this guy in the front row here. You know, he only puts in half a shift compared to what I do in a week. It's much the same. Much the same. And I don't know how Paul managed to get away with it a lot of the time. It's hardly endearing to others. And Paul seems quite oblivious to political correctness and diplomacy. He just calls it as he sees it. I might pick holes in Paul's lack of subtlety or lack of diplomacy or his lack of tact. But I'm actually in awe of his example, the way that he poured out his life for the purposes of God. In about a 15-year period, he travelled 13,000 miles by foot. That's a fair way by anybody's standards. In that period, he also did another additional 3,500 by boat, including being shipwrecked on three occasions. And he said, his grace, God's grace to him was not without effect. You see, our actions, the way that we live our lives, will always reveal whether we truly understand grace or not. You know, if we never make sacrifice in time, effort, energy, personal finances for Jesus, then we, we probably haven't got a grip of God's grace just yet. On one occasion, Jesus was invited around to a Pharisee's house for a meal. The Pharisee, was his name was Simon. And Simon didn't even provide Jesus with the basic expressions of courtesy in their day. He didn't give him water to wash his feet. He didn't get, give him oil for his head. But then a woman came into the house. She was a prostitute, who had been a prostitute. And she came in and she washed Jesus' feet with her tears and she wiped his feet with her hair. And then she poured very expensive perfume over Jesus. And Simon was utterly disgusted by this action. And it proved to him that Jesus was certainly no prophet because he didn't even know who this woman was. That he should allow her to do this sort of thing. Jesus knew the thoughts of Simon. And Jesus came out with a very short parable and he said, Two men, two men, owed a certain money lender money. One owed about 500 silver pieces, the other owed 50. They both had their debts cancelled. Which one of them loved the person more, the money lender? And Simon answered and he said, I suppose it was the one with the bigger debt cancelled. And Jesus showed, you see, that the, this woman did what she did because she had had a big debt forgiven by God, And it showed also that Simon, in the way that he reacted to Jesus, with a measure of contempt, proved that he was still in debt. Hers was an appropriate response to grace. Simon's wasn't. And I would say to you this morning that there is such a thing 
as an appropriate response to grace. We may never be able to earn God's salvation and forgiveness. We can't. We don't deserve it. It's free, it's gratis, but there is an appropriate response to all that he has done for us. And I believe that uh, Paul's example really is a sharp rebuke to many Christians today who talk of God's saving grace and yet live their lives in comfortable complacency. The cosy knowledge of sins forgiven, but not the radical discipleship that Jesus calls his followers to. I would ask you this morning, as I ask myself, can we say what Paul has said? His grace to me was not without effect. And if there's a question you're going home with today, go home with that one. Is that something that we can say of ourselves? So many great stories I could tell you this morning. I could keep you here all day and all week telling you stories about people who have lived and responded to the grace of God in their lives in some wonderful ways. Mother Teresa's nuns in Calcutta who lavish care on homeless people. Some of them have mere days, some of them have less than that to live. What about Chuck Colson? Imprisoned for his part in the Watergate uh, scandal some years ago, he became a follower of Christ in prison. And then he founded the Prison Fellowship, which today operates in 117 countries, reaching prisoners with the message of God's grace. That great work goes on, even though now Coulson himself has been promoted to heaven. Then there's Millard Fuller, millionaire entrepreneur from Alabama, who was rich, he was miserable, his marriage was in a mess, his marriage was on the rocks. He turned to Christ, gave away his fortune, and founded an organization on the premise that every person on the planet deserves a a decent place to live. Today, Habitat for Humanity enlists thousands of volunteers to build houses all over the world. On one occasion, a rather skeptical Jewish woman came up to uh, Millard Fuller and said to him that uh, what he was doing, she felt, was... um, probably for evangelistic purposes, and his answer was brilliant. He said, Madam, we don't try to evangelize. You don't have to be a Christian to live in one of our houses or to help us build one. The fact is, the reason that I do what I do, and so many of our volunteers do what they do, is that we are being obedient to Jesus. Grace not without effect. Or what about Dame Cicely Saunders? One of the founder of the modern hospice movement at St. Christopher's Hospice in London. Um, Sicily was a social worker and a nurse. And she was appalled by the way that medical stra- staff were, were, were treating people who were about to die. In essence, they were being ignored in the hospitals. And as a, a Christian, she was utterly offended by this. But no one would listen to a nurse. So she returned to medical school and uh, she trained to become a doctor. And then she founded a place where people could come to die with dignity, without pain. There are now 8,000 hospices in over 100 countries. What about Bill McGee, Dr. Bill McGee, a plastic surgeon? He was shocked to find that in the third world countries, 
Many children go through life with cleft palates that never get treated. They can't smile. Their lips curl open in a constant sneer, very often making them an object of ridicule. McGee and his wife um, organized a program called Operation Smile. And now plane loads of doctors and support personnel travel to places like Vietnam and Russia and Philippines and Kenya, the Middle East. And they, over the years, have operated on 240,000 children, leaving the legacy of children's smiles. Again, what about the medical missionaries who work with leprosy patients? There's no greater abused group of people on earth. They are the untouchable caste. And yet, most of the advances in leprosy treatment have come from those who are medical Christian missionaries who were the only people to touch and care for leprosy victims. It was C.S. Lewis who said this, those most conscious of another world have made the most effective Christians in this one. Wow. Let's just stop and look at that uh, phrase for a moment, that sentence. Those most conscious of another world have made the most effective Christians in this one. You see, grace, when we truly understand it, demands a response. That God has reached down to each one of us with his grace. And even though we may never create an organization like the hospice movement, or arrange the operations of thousands of children, we can be channels of grace to the ones and the twos, the threes and the fours. For those who have become recipients of God's grace, we are called also to be dispensers of that same grace. And finally, grace enables our response. We read there in verse 10, I worked harder than all of them. And then the qualifier, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And before anybody could accuse Paul of being big-headed, he, he qualified his statement here. And it really is, um, I'm glad he did that. It's, um, it's really interesting sometimes the, the things that people would say to me at the end of a morning in church, you know, having listened to a sermon. And uh, over the years I've had some very, very dubious comments indeed. Um, I remember someone saying to me once, um, Steve, if I knew you were going to be that good this morning, I would have brought a friend. <laughs> now, I, I really didn't know what to make of that uh, um, that comment. The inference is that I'm not normally that good and therefore that person didn't bring a friend. I think that was the inference. Um, I don't care what others say, I thought you were great. And uh, the, the, the most incredible one that I've ever been given, and I, I think I've shared this one with you before, when I was taking a, a youth weekend many, many years ago down in South Wales, this guy came up to me. Um, that was a brilliant sermon, Pastor because I used to think you were a prat. <laughs> Which, that really was quite some comment. I also heard of uh, one speaker being complimented how brilliant his sermon was, and rather embarrassingly, uh, in receiving the compliment, he said, oh, that wasn't me, that was the Holy Spirit, to which the other person said, it wasn't that good. <laughs> yeah. 
You see, people are very often bashful, aren't we? We all are, of taking compliments or applause in any way for a job done, uh, for, a, for, a, for the things that we have done. And Paul gets the balance exactly right here. He states what he sees as the truth, and then he gives the glory to God. And what is Paul saying here? He is saying that anything that he has achieved for God, and he has achieved much, was a result of God's grace, helping, aiding, strengthening him day by day. And that's what he is saying on a day by day basis. Lord, it's your grace that enables me to live for you. I could never have done it alone, Lord. I could never have done this through sheer willpower or through desire only. It was your grace day by day. You see, grace is not only that which we receive when we first become Christians and we receive his forgiveness for all of eternity. But he gives us grace day by day to strengthen us, to enable us to carry on working for him. Christian life is a life full of adventure and discovery. I believe it's a, a life which is meant to be lived on the edge, not boring. It's exciting. It's joining in with God in, the, in his, mission, his mission, in his rescue mission for the world. And it's, it's quite wonderful. Well, time has gone. I'm going to just draw to a close. And I'm going to draw to a close with two very simple challenges. Okay. Challenge one. If you're a person here today and if you were to die today and you were to meet God face to face and God was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How would you answer that? Would you focus on yourself? about all the things that you have done, the way that you have lived, maximizing your good points, minimizing your bad points, or would you focus on God and would you say, I don't deserve anything, but everything that I have is because of your grace. Lord, there was a day in my life when I put all my eggs in one basket, when I trusted you totally and utterly for my forgiveness and for my new start, and one day for entrance into heaven, which of course is the right answer. I said there were two challenges, two questions. The second question is this. For those who would this morning claim that you are what you are because of God's grace. That is your only claim to fame. And I guess that that is the majority of us in this room. My question to you is, can you say with Paul, by the grace of God, God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. That's your challenge. Guys, would you come back, please? Would you stand with me? I want to pray. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, firstly, this, this morning, I want to pray.
for those in this gathering who are sincere in their desire to honour you and yet they have no assurance of your love they have no assurance of your forgiveness they have no assurance of heaven their focus is upon themselves rather than upon your unmerited and deserved unconditional love dear Lord I just pray for those people this morning I pray Lord that they will accept your love for them even before this this service ends that they will reach out to you as the God who can do with their lives far more than they ever possibly thought they could I pray Lord that they will know your forgiveness they will know the spirit of God brooding over them infilling them with love and with assurance and with that knowledge of sins forgiven I pray And for those of you who are in that group that, I, that I've just prayed for and you truly want to know that assurance with God today assurance of sins forgiven assurance of a new start assurance of one day welcomed into the presence of God himself I would love to pray with you and I would love to pray for you this week I'd ask you please please just share your desires or may have other questions please come and talk about that over a cup of coffee later on. And Lord, this morning I also pray that we might be a people who will respond with passion and enthusiasm, with joy and with great zeal for all the things that you have done for us. For the honour of your name, Lord. Amen.